right, everybody. Hello and welcome to our first installment of a series on Romans. And let me tell you, of all of the books of Holy Scripture, there are two books that take longer to explain, longer to study, longer to go over, and, well, well, for the rest of your life, you're going to find yourself studying them and coming back to them over and over again. And those are Romans and Revelation for two very different reasons. Revelation as, uh, well, the apocalypse, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ and his intentions and the plans for the future, everything. It, you have to be a massive student of Holy Scripture to understand even the first chapter. And then you have to be a student of the first chapter in excruciating detail in order to understand everything else. But when it comes to Romans, the book of Romans is the closest thing in the entire Bible to a systematic theology textbook. It is why there is so much controversy over it. It is why the uh, there have been Lutheran theology textbooks out there that are more or less just commentaries on the book of Romans. <laughs> so much is said directly by St. Paul, that as we read it, A, we have to understand it, and B, we have to work really, really, really hard on citing it and collecting all of this data here in order to fully formulate a picture of the faith as St. Paul presents it here. But also, it's one of the few letters that St. Paul writes, along with like Ephesians, where he doesn't really address that much the individual church. Or does he? We'll, we'll have to talk about the, new, the supposed new perspective on Paul, which is just a terrifyingly gross misreading of the book of Romans. But he does write to a church. Before we actually dive into Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we do have to cover a little bit of the historical data here. And it's plain that St. Paul is writing this sometime in the 50s AD. How do we know this? Oh, there, is a, there are Roman historians that write about during the time of Claudius or Nero... Sometime around 63-ish AD, they kick out all the Jews from the city of Rome. And they write about it because, while well, they kicked the Jews off out because there was this argument, this dissension between what I believe Suetonius calls Crestus. He misunderstood the term Christ. There was a church there, and there were arguments concerning Jesus. There was a lot of fighting about him. And St. Paul addresses some of this in, in such a way that he probably couldn't have addressed if there were no Jews in Rome, having freshly been expelled by the emperor. Now, it, it is sometimes stated that maybe Paul was writing at a time when they started to come back to the city of Rome. But either way, we're looking at an early date. Because around the same time as uh, Roman historians are noting, okay, these Jews and, and some non-Jews are fighting over this Jesus guy, St. Paul is addressing 
that argument. It is a contemporary letter for a contemporary conflict. So we're putting this at about AD 55. So before St. Paul is beheaded, of course, but also uh, during a time in which the Christian church is, well, still kind of headquartered at Jerusalem. And there, there is a little bit of that. But a lot of his addresses on where he's going, what he's doing, it's in like the very first parts of the book and then the very end of it. Again, this book is primarily a theological work. It is what Luther believed to be the chief part of the New Testament, and for good reason, because you can see a ton of basic Christian theology in it. There's very few books that if you put a man on an island who is, he can read, but all he's got with him is a single book of the Bible, can that book be used to save his soul? Well, generally speaking, if you've got the book of John or the book of Romans, that guy is solid. So with that said, I know I'm rambling a bit here, so let's just go ahead and read the first seven verses, the greeting that St. Paul writes here. And we're going to go through this painfully slowly, by the way. Um, Luther writes that if a pastor or a preacher preaches on the Our Father, right, on the Lord's Prayer, and if he reads over Our Father as he's getting ready to write his sermon and he doesn't sit there and meditate on that, not a good pastor. You need to go over this in detail to understand it, so the entirety of this series is going to be going over in detail everything we can concerning the book of Romans. So let's start out here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may the words of my Lord be upon my mind, upon my lips, and upon my heart. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, who was descended with, from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So, following Luther's advice, let's just take a look at this first verse here. Painfully slowly, but this is how we learn. Paul, a servant, in the Greek, bond servant or slave, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is introducing himself. It is likely here that the Roman church, he's never really, 
seen them, never really visited this church because he is giving an introduction of who he is. But that begs the question, who is St. Paul and what does this mean for our theology? Anybody can be a bond servant of Christ Jesus if they are so called. All believers are servants of our Lord Jesus. The first clause here, a servant of Christ Jesus, should not surprise us. But he's introducing himself that way. Which means St. Paul is saying here, I'm doing this, I'm writing this letter, why? The first thing he says, aside from his own name, is a servant of Christ Jesus. And then he says, called to be an apostle, a sent one. Now we recognize here that the church is built on what? The church is built on the word of the prophets and the apostles. St. Paul is making a claim here. Now being an apostle, that's a very big title. But St. Paul is not one of the 12 apostles. In fact, we have to really look and ask ourselves, okay, does St. Paul have apostolic authority the same way St. John does in his gospel, his letters, or the book of Revelation? Does he have the same apostolic authority to be writing to us that St. Peter has? Well, kind of. It's a second-hand authority. His words are still holy and inspired scripture, but not because of any merit on Paul's own behalf, and not because of any positional merit on Paul's own behalf. So when we look here at Acts chapter 1, we're going to be jumping around, so if you have a notebook handy to write this down, please feel free to just write down little notes on the scriptural references I'm making here. But in Acts chapter 1, St. Peter tells us what the requirements are to be a capital A apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody properly understood to be a sent one among the original 12. So from Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse 12, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, or St. Jude. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And he became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, St. Peter says, 
Somebody else has to be an apostle, capital A, one of the 12, instead of Judas, who hung himself, the rope broke, he fell down, hit his head, his stomach got cut open, really gruesome scene. Continuing on in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there can only really be twelve capital A apostles who have the right, according to John chapter 14, to be recollecting the things Jesus said and did. So John chapter 14, we get the basis for the inspiration of the New Testament, by the way. Because our Lord Jesus Christ promises it to us. So he says here to the 12 apostles uh, in John 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, apostles write Bible. The Holy Spirit has been promised to the apostles to have them basically write Bible to ensure the inspiration of their words. If the Holy Spirit is bringing to their remembrance the things they said, then what the apostles say is trustworthy. And that's, well, the gift given to the Twelve. Does that apply to St. Paul? Actually, yes, but again, not because he's one of the big capital A Apostles. He's a special case. So we understand that after the stoning of uh, St. Stephen in Acts chapter 11, you know, he's stoned to death and uh, St. Paul there at that time, Saul, was there basically <laughs> consenting to their death and taking their cloaks and going, hey, you know, this is heavy. Here, pick up a rock with, uh, without your cloak on, that sort of thing. When St. Paul is converted... Right When he is called, the scales uh, come over his eyes. He sees this bright light. Christ says, you know, why are you persecuting me? In Acts chapter 9, we have an interesting little blurb from God, a pronouncement from God about what's going to happen. Speaking to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So, St. Paul, in the book of Romans here, when he says in verse 1, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He is not claiming 
the same authority as, say, St. Peter or St. James or St. Jude. What he is saying is he has a special mission from God as the bonus apostle to we Gentiles to write this letter. Just as he has a special mission to write 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Titus, Philemon, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and so forth, and to go into all these synagogues and all these temples, to go to the Areopagus and proclaim this, while he does not have the same promise regarding the words of Christ and the eyewitness testimony that the 12 apostles including Matthias, the replacement apostle for Judas, he has a special mission and thus the Holy Spirit backing up his words. Now, why am I going for so long now? I think it's been 10 minutes now. I'm just talking about the role of an apostle and who St. Paul is because this is the basis for the rest of the book being held true for a first century audience. Back in the day when you did not have the 66 books of scripture collected, mass printed, ready to go for everybody, you still needed to identify yourself. Uh, the writers of scripture did still need to do something to identify themselves, something that proved who they were, so that instead of just being a letter from just anybody, this was a letter from a real somebody who carried real weight and called real attention to their words. And when St. Paul addresses himself as Paul in this first verse, there is also great import there. Why? Because in 2 Peter chapter 1, St. Peter, at the time the leader of the church, tells us pretty darn plainly that, yes, what St. Paul writes is Holy Scripture. Actually, that's 2 Peter chapter 3, not chapter 1. From 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in uh, verse 14. Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So St. Paul has been given wisdom. And in verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. St. Peter here saying that there are other scriptures than what St. Paul is writing, that means that St. Paul is writing scripture. And this was recognized in the first century AD. That must have been common knowledge for St. Paul to simply write Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. But then we get set apart for the gospel of God. Here in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then we stop for a moment. 
St. Paul is an apostle set apart for what? As we read in Acts, to proclaim the gospel. He's set apart for that. That's his job. So what else is, what is he going to be writing to the Roman church about? The gospel. <laughs> in the very first verse here, he's telling us, here is who I am, why I'm doing it. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. How do you know that I'm doing it, doing my job? I'm called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So what am I doing here? We're talking about the gospel. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. Oh, he promised beforehand. God keeps his promises. But also this means if God has promised all of this in the Old Testament through the prophets, then St. Paul is probably not going to be presenting anything new. Remember, St. Paul is proclaiming, not innovating. There's a huge thing for us to keep in mind here. There is a movement out there, and I have another recording on it, that tries to claim that St. Paul is somehow counter-signaling what Jesus said or counter-signaling what the other apostles said. And that is not true. In fact, St. Paul here, by saying that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets and holy scriptures, those promises are in the Old Testament. Anything you can find here in the book of Romans is going to be in the Old Testament too. And there's going to be a lot of cross-references throughout the book of Romans which give us that picture. They give us that understanding. So, what is that understanding though? Well, it's concerning his son as we continue in verse uh, 3 here. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. And that already is a, a little bit of a nod here that yes, descended from David means Jesus Christ has a legitimate claim to the throne of Israel according to the flesh though, meaning there's more to Jesus than just being a descendant from David. And what is that special thing that separates him from that? We look in verse 4 was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament, what everybody at the time had something of an understanding on, there was a Torah and an Old Testament in just about every synagogue back then. He's saying, okay, the Old Testament promises that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 3, concerning his Son. But he is also descended from David according to the flesh. Meaning he is the Son of God. He is a divine figure who is also descended from David. He is also human. He is both divine and human. And that it's according to the flesh that he's descended from David, but there is significance there because that means he is king. Now, then it says in verse 4, and oh my goodness, there are so many heretics that would just, just love to make hay with this. As St. Peter says, 
St. Paul's words get twisted up by heretics, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, why would heretics like to make hay out of that? Well, during St. Paul's time, in the first century, shortly after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, it wasn't long before heresy started cropping up, trying to say things about Jesus that are not true. And one of those was adoptionism. Adoptionism claims that Jesus started out as a man, but was adopted by God the Father to become the Son of God. He was not always divine. And some adoptionists will claim that he didn't become divine. Some will say that he did become God. The idea here is they would make hay out of verse 4, saying, well, he was declared to be the Son of God, not saying that he was the Son of God. That's foolishness. Because declared to be the Son of God is for someone to say something. It's not that he was established to be the Son of God. It doesn't mean he became the Son of God. He is the Son of God. That's an eternal present tense for Christ. But he was declared a pronouncement, a kerygma, the Son of God, in an official sense, right? Saying something. You turn on the news, and if it's Greek news and somebody makes a proclamation, um, they would probably use the Greek verb horizo, Strong's number 3724. That is the same verb um, used here for declared. And uh, according to Bible Hub here, with their little handy-dandy lexicon, it says to mark off by boundaries, to determine. Its usage is for I separate, mark off by boundaries, I determine, appoint, designate. Ah, and then our heretic, our oneness Pentecostal, or our Jehovah's Witness says, aha, I'm going to use the, the version of that verb that means Jesus Christ was designated the Son of God officially through this. Ha, 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 I win. But there's problems with that. In power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If the Holy Spirit decided and established Jesus Christ as the Son of God at the moment of resurrection, because it says it was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, then what do we do with, uh, you know, the baptism of Christ in the Jordan in which God the Father proclaims, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the same thing at the Mount of Transfiguration. Declaring as a pronouncement is the statement that this is who he is, not what he has become. Again, we got to go through this slowly. We got to go through this painfully. We got to go through this thoroughly to make sure we don't fall into crappy heretical hermeneutics here. Especially with the last part of verse 4. What are those last four words? Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Jesus is a Greek version of the name Joshua. You know what Joshua means? God saves. Christ means the anointed one. It's a Greek version of the word Messiah. Our Lord, the word Lord coming from the Greek kurios, meaning Lord, Master, my God. What is that in the Greek? God saves the Messiah, our Lord, whom we address as Lord. A common refrain for addressing a God in the first century AD would have been kurios, in the Greek anyway. So what does that mean? Jesus Christ, the anointed one God saves. Our Lord, by the way, in case in case St. Paul didn't have to underline it anymore, but he decided to do it for us from the very first few verses here in verse 4, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the King of Israel, God's people. We'll get to that especially in chapter 9. And by the way, he is God. Fully God, fully man. He is the promised anointed one and he is King. And he was promised to be so in St. Paul in saying that this was all promised in the Old Testament. In the Holy Scriptures they had at the time. That means that you can find out all of this going through the Old Testament. How awesome is that? But then he continues with his greeting here. So just in a few verses here, he's brought up, here's the basics of who Jesus is because Christ is the very beating heart, the center of his gospel. He continues in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Another very, very, very deep statement here. It is through Jesus Christ, he says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So, first and foremost, he's received grace from our Lord. St. Paul is a saint, after all, someone given grace by our Lord Jesus Christ and also given apostleship as the 13th or bonus apostle who, as St. Peter declares and as our Lord declares to Ananias in the book of Acts, St. Paul has that guarantee. Yes, Jesus Christ himself called St. Paul to do all of this. But to what? Well, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Ethnoi, by the way, uh, among all the nations, that's races, basically including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's a lot to unpack there. When he says the obedience of faith, what does he mean? There is a kind of obedience of faith when it comes to having faith. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. Looking across all of Pauline theology here, there is what the Lutheran reformers refer to as the new obedience. See, the law at first, before you become a Christian, accuses you of your failures. 
The law says that you are not good enough. The law says you are a terrible sinner. Here are all the things that you are supposed to do, and for the entirety of your life, you have failed to do them. You break all Ten Commandments every single day, you wretched piece of scum. And the law is correct, because it is holy and good, and it is the word of God. Originally, obedience to the law before Christ consists of threats. You are responding to a negative stimulus that says, I'm a worm, and I don't want to be damned. I better try my best to qualify to God's infinite, powerful demands here, lest he squish me like a bug. But we cannot. In comes Jesus, our Savior, who dies for our sins, and he inspires in us the new obedience. Now, the new obedience is done for different reasons. When we Christians look at the Ten Commandments and say, yes, I want to fulfill those, we're not looking at it from a lens of, or else X, Y, and Z happens. I mean, that factors in. God's wrath is still very real, and his discipline upon believers is a real thing. But if we read here in Ephesians chapter 2, we read here, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And all of our Baptist and Lutheran and Protestant friends rejoice that we have not been saved by our works, but by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But then we got to read that 10th verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are saved with a purpose. And St. Paul here is intent when he says to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. St. Paul is saying pretty clearly that by spreading the gospel, by proclaiming it to people and God working his wonders in human souls to save them, that new obedience, that obedience of faith. I don't obey God out of fear as much as I obey him out of faith and out of gratitude. That's part of St. Paul's mission. That is the fruit of his works there, that people would believe the gospel and do their best to glorify God with the good works which they were made for beforehand. Among all the nations, as we said earlier in Acts, it says that he's supposed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, first and foremost. And yeah, St. Paul at first goofs it a little bit because he, he goes first to the synagogue in Damascus. But his job is to go among all the nations and proclaim the gospel to bring about this obedience of faith. Including, he says in verse 6, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's an interesting statement. He's addressing the Roman church, yes, but he's also saying you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ as an included. St. Paul is preaching to everybody among the nations, whether they believe or not. And it is in the hope that everybody listening would be called to belong to Jesus Christ, as he says in verse 6. 
but that's not necessarily a guarantee. The offer goes out to all of them. This is part of objective versus subjective justification. Objective justification, it, it is true that Jesus Christ truly did die for the justification of all sinners, not just believers. And Christ's atonement is truly accessible to all people. Does that mean that all are going to be saved? No. Only the elect are saved, it appears, and we'll get into the Calvinist versus Arminian versus Lutheran versus Roman Catholic views on predestination, and, and I guess we'll throw in the Eastern Orthodox there. But no matter, at the end of the day, he's preaching to everybody, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, the elect, the predestined, all who are part of the faith. And then he concludes this section of his greeting here saying, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 7, to all those in Rome, he's writing to the Roman church, of course, it's called the book of Romans. Obviously, though, this is going to be a circular letter. It's part of Paul's proclamation. The book of Romans, from the very earliest parts of the first century, was passed around and copied. Scribes bringing it up, copying it down. Everybody in a church, if they could, would get a copy of Romans for it to be for everybody. But it starts with Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. There's an and there. When you are called to be a saint, you are loved by God. Yes, but even the enemies of God are, in a sense, loved by our Lord. Again, that follows with universal objective justification. Is everybody saved? No. But does God still love everybody? Absolutely. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this greeting here helps us when he says grace to you and peace, in the Greek way of doing letters, you would say karen, grace, grace to you, good fortune to you, grace of the divine upon you. If you were writing a letter as a Jew, you would say shalom, peace. The early apostles, the apostles wrote grace to you and peace because they were writing to both Jews and Gentiles. So to the Gentiles first, he would say, grace to you, Karen. And then to the Jews, he would say, shalom. In the seventh verse, we're seeing a greeting that puts both of those together because, as he says in Ephesians, that dividing wall has been broken down. It's not just the Jews that have access to salvation. It's now everybody that can, by faith, lay hold of Christ himself and rejoice in the salvation he brings. Now you might notice here in this greeting it says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people might go, as some have claimed, hey, wasn't I baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? I'll make the sign of the cross. That's three persons. 
Why, how come there's so many greetings here that just say God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Were they Benetarians? Because St. Paul, you know, um, Pastor, you, you've brought up that, yeah, St. Paul's declaring that Jesus is God here and the Son of God. Yep, absolutely. And yep, the Father is definitely God. But what about the Holy Spirit? We will get to that. In the book of Romans, you can find a functional Trinitarian theology. At the, the Holy Spirit is kind of interesting, though. He's been called the shy member of the Trinity. When you hear someone say that they are an apostle, you go back in your mind to John chapter 14, and oh yeah, the Holy Spirit is God who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's there. But he's the shy member of the Trinity. He, he doesn't want us to be extremely focused upon him. We do pray to him. We pray to God. Yes, absolutely. But he doesn't call attention to himself nearly as much. And there's a mystery there. So I think the greeting reflects more of that than a supposed first century Binitarian worship on the part of the church. Instead... When we look at him saying, again, he mentions the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. When you consider holiness there, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, holiness is being set apart, special. Using the definite article, the, there are many spirits. And there are many spirits that may or may not be set apart, but when you look at the Holy Spirit, and St. Paul addressing him as the Spirit of holiness itself, that must be God. St. Paul is not denying the Trinity, and he is not giving points to the Arians here. A couple hundred years before the Arians were a problem, he is simply giving the same greeting that people had always been giving. Because the members of the Trinity that do command attention more than the Holy Spirit are there. The Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now you look at that. You look at these seven verses. Let's just go ahead and reread all seven. And then we're going to try to summarize them. <laughs> it's just the first seven verses and it's already been close to 43 minutes. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we summarize the actually looking at these verses, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, this is the basic reason of who I am. I'm a servant, so I'm doing this. I'm writing this to you, called to be an apostle. 
there's history there, but I'm the bonus apostle writing to you so you, you can trust me because I've been set apart for the gospel of God, which you can find in the Old Testament, which is all about his son, Jesus, who is our king, descended from King David according to the flesh. But remember, or before then, he already is the son, but in case you didn't know it, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness, the Holy Spirit working through all of this upon the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ our Lord, which those four words tell us everything we need to know that he is God, he is the Anointed One, he is our Lord. And it is by him then that we, or I, Paul, have received grace and apostleship directly from Christ to bring about the obedience of faith, the new obedience that comes from faith in Jesus our Savior for the sake of his name, God's honor, and for greater worship for God among all the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Whether or not you believe, that is what you are called to do. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints for Everybody in Rome, let's start here in Rome. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So all you Gentiles reading this and to you Jews, grace, karen, and peace, shalom from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from them, but also, by the way, this letter definitely does truly come from them because they are the ones inspiring it by the Holy Spirit who proceeds from both. And that's the first seven verses of Romans, which gives us a huge amount of what the book of Romans is going to be about. Not all of St. Paul's introductions are going to include this much, but he writes with a purpose. He writes with a very specific purpose. And through excruciating, painstaking study, we are going to see this because this is a book you should be studying over the course of your entire life. In just the first seven verses, he gives us the basis for our belief, who we believe, why we believe it. Including, by the way, this assumption that the Holy Scriptures are inspired. At least starting with the Old Testament. We understand St. Peter declaring what St. Paul wrote to be Holy Scripture. Absolutely. But at the same time, there is an assumption of inspiration here which we need to hold on to whether or not you believe in sola scriptura saint paul when he says that jesus was promised beforehand that the gospel was promised in its entirety in the old testament this is what the saints in the old testament looked forward to with faith for their salvation that means that if the if the old testament cannot be trusted saint paul would not say that if there were errors in the Old Testament, he would not say that one little bit. If you ever have a critic of Holy Scripture claim, well, you can't just trust in the Bible to say to prove the inspiration of the Bible, because what about external references? That's not how anybody saw it that actually wrote Bible. I know it's kind of silly, I shouldn't even have to say that, but St. Paul assumes the inspiration of Scripture. And later on, 
writing to St. Timothy, he says, yes, this, all scripture is inspired by God. Period. But first it's assumed. All those cross-references we're going to find ourselves doing, going back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament, between Old Testament and Romans, and between New Testament and Romans, and going back and forth, that is because there is the assumption of verbal plenary inspiration in the autographs of Holy Scripture. And that means we have to pay double extra super careful attention to it. With that said, though, that also verifies again that St. Paul is not bringing in anything new. He is a collector. He is a theologian bringing everything together to teach what God has always taught, but also to make it plain so that we don't have to jump between a billion different books and and get ourselves degrees in the Hebrew language or in Greek to find out what's going on. St. Paul collects it all for us and tells us this is the true interpretation of all these verses and promises from our Lord. So St. Paul being a theologian is also a, an interpreter for us. When we ask, what is the interpretive authority of Holy Scripture? Well, Holy Scripture is, yes, but one man was especially chosen to have that role for us Gentiles, and that was St. Paul. And by the way, that includes Jewish Christians too. But that's the whole point of it. He is going to be going through in painstaking detail the minutiae of the Christian faith as originally presented in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. And I can't wait to get through even more of it with you guys. That's it. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, your word is precious to us, and we thank you especially today for the book of Romans. Please help us to be diligent in study. Please help us to have open eyes for your message to us in it. I pray to your God that we will have this entire series on Romans complete for all to hear, read, and glorify you in faith at the pure gospel which is given to us in this holy epistle. We praise you for these things, dear God, and we love you very much. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray all of this. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, hopefully I don't flub over my words in the next one. Amen and amen, everybody.